America's response to the Holocaust, what does history tell us? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, October 19th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the untold story of America's efforts to save the Jews of Europe. We'll explore the legacy of the War Refugee Board. We'll take a look at economic growth in the southeast corner of the state. How do 16 rural and suburban municipalities in four counties work together to create a community worth living in? South Dakota continues to see COVID deaths and COVID cases, but who's testing these days? Kevin Wooster is, but his results proved that mild cold had something worse in store for him. Plus, a spooky night that celebrates paranormal stories from Asian cultures that is coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. It has been 15 days since Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted. House Republican Jim Jordan has lost two rounds of votes to win the Speaker's gavel. He said this morning he won't pursue a third round. The U.S. House of Representatives is effectively at a standstill, but that doesn't mean they're just standing around. South Dakota Representative Dusty Johnson is with me on the phone now for an update. Congressman Johnson, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you seeing any viable options emerge at this point? Uh, I'm not, and I just I want to apologize to South Dakota. I mean, this uh, U.S. House is an absolute mess. Uh, our country, our state deserves better. There are a lot of very well-intentioned, good citizens serving in the House, Lori. They're trying to find our way forward, and I just got to tell you, we continue to be paralyzed by the kind of uh, toxicity and, and zero-sum gamesmanship that is uh, infecting uh, our government from school boards on up. I mean, to, to try to end on a slightly more positive note, I, I would just reiterate there are really good human beings who are trying to find they, their way through this, and we will. NPR had reported this morning that people were upset about the the kind of tactics that the Jim Jordan camp was using to move things forward. So I'm wondering what you're hearing about what kind of language works to build to a compromise or a potential solution. Jim Jordan has not been at the base of any of this. I mean, I have seen him time and time and time again publicly and privately talk about the fact that we need to listen this is modern dc this is not old school you're not going to bully into bully anybody into voting a particular way it has it, it does not work and he has but we have so much rage within the most extreme voices of any party they're not controllable by by people in office now there are things some things office holders do to help assemble the kindling Right there, each of us, uh, as office holders and as citizens, I think have an obligation to try to uh, reduce the likelihood of these sparks. But um, you know, people aren't doing these things at Jim Jordan's direction. Uh, Jim knows that it is thoroughly counterproductive. It has wounded, not uh, helped uh, his push to become speaker. And unfortunately, it, there is so much violent rhetoric. Uh, that is being placed uh, at the feet and at the homes and at the offices of every member, regardless of where they stand on the speaker's raise. It is really a symptom of, of a, a public square that is unwell. Mm. 
There has been much talk about empowering uh, Patrick McHenry with additional powers to to do some legislating. Do you see that as a potential step forward, even if it's for two weeks? For the last two hours, the 221 Republicans in the House have been having uh, a discussion about the, the, the legal, the constitutional, the practical effects of that. As is so often the case, it is, uh, it's a little unclear exactly what the right thing to do is. The Constitution in Article 1 says that uh, the House shall choose its speaker. That is scant wording, but it's pretty direct. Uh, for some uh, uber-constitutionalists, they don't believe that that gives us an opportunity to uh, select a speaker pro tem, for instance, that we just have to follow the, clean, the, uh, the plain meaning of the Constitution and select a speaker, gosh darn it, and, and then we can get to work. There are others who point to a statute passed by the House on a bipartisan basis in the wake of 9-11 that was passed for the purposes of continuity of government that seems to suggest that a speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry in this case, would be able to exercise uh, the full powers of the Speaker of the House. But the language is not as clear as we'd like it. And I know everybody imagines that folks in Congress are just snarling political animals who are only trying to figure out, you know, what, what does the donor class want or what, the, what enriches me or what can I do to own the other side? That's not what's going on, Lori. It, it is really a lot of very smart people and a lot of very uh, decent people who are trying to have a real conversation about what are the legal boundaries and the practical applications of this and how do we act in a way that both serves the nation in the short term, but that also does not set a precedent that might hurt our country in the long term. It's really frustrating, and I just uh, I hope that we can come to a conclusion soon. I, I don't know much about the House parliamentarian and, and who is sort of the keeper of that knowledge. Are there people other than the elected uh, representatives to the House who are helping navigate the, the legal complexities right now? What can you tell me about that that might be of interest to South Dakota listeners? Yes, the parliamentarian is a gentleman by the name of Jason Smith. He has a staff of dedicated and highly trained professionals. This is... Uh, <laughs> This is a, uh, a niche uh, area of study for sure. There are not a million people who can do this, but they're really good. The issue comes when you've got wording that is unclear. And, and this is some things we struggle with in the law all the time. I mean, the Constitution talks about the fact that Congress can regulate interstate commerce. Well, what exactly does that mean? And for 247 years, we've had been having debates about this. And and we get uh, nine smart people in black robes on the court, and, and in 1950, they may view it differently than they did in 1850. And similarly, the parliamentarian is just one guy, and we don't know exactly what he thinks about this. His decisions are not binding. If a majority of the House disagrees with him, then the majority of the House rules, unless a court decides that we're wrong. We don't really have the benefit of waiting around for nine months or two years for a court to conclusively decide what this means. At some point, we have an ally at war. We're $33 trillion in debt. Regardless of your political uh, views, you have to admit the southern border is uh, either a humanitarian or national security crisis, and it's actually both. And in our government shuts down in 29 days unless we act. Uh, we are in uncharted waters and that is why I think it was so incredibly irresponsible for eight hardline Republicans and 208 Democrats 
to throw our country into constitutional crisis. What is your message to U.S. allies who are concerned about uh, the work ceasing from the Armed Service Committee, the Appropriations Committee, and just the overall functioning of the U.S. government um, in their time of need? What would you say to U.S. allies? I would say, well, I would, and I've, I've used this quote on your show before, so I hate to be a one-note Johnny, but Winston Churchill said famously that you can always count on the Americans to do the right things once they have exhausted all other options. And I think a corollary to that is, um, you know, America gets to the right place, but often, often in the most messiest of paths. And I'm going to tell our allies, we're going to be there, and we're going to do right by Taiwan and by Israel and by Ukraine and by the other 210 freedom-loving countries in the world that look to us for leadership, who understand that there has never been a country in the history of the world to do more to lift uh, the globe out of poverty and to expand freedom across the globe than the United States of America. And last week was messy, and this week is messy, but it is just two weeks. And please do not allow two weeks of chaos to disrupt what has been a beautiful 247 years, messy though it has been, a 247-year commitment to those values. We're going to get it right. It may take us a few more days, but we're going to get it right. Much of the opposition for Jim Jordan came from members of the Armed Service Committee or the Appropriations side. Um, How did it feel for you to cast your vote for Jim Jordan? We need to get to work. And and I realized Steve Scalise was the first nominee coming out of the Republican conference after uh, Kevin McCarthy was irresponsibly deposed, thrown out. And I was supportive of Steve Scalise. Um, You know, Steve Scalise won the primary. And then, in essence, you go to the general. And and I was going to we needed to open up the House. And I was willing to support uh, the conference nominee. When Steve Scalise uh, stepped aside, Jim Jordan won the vote, the primary, if you will, and I was willing to support the nominee to open up the House. And I am getting increasingly frustrated with my colleagues who will argue that they needed to oppose Steve Scalise because he wasn't perfect, and they need to oppose Jim Jordan because he's not perfect. And let me be clear, there will be people who will uh, oppose the fourth and the fifth and the sixth nominee. This is our political environment right now. People think that if they Uh, holler and yell and are stubborn and intransigent uh, and intransigent, but they just get what they want, uh, not what the common ground would suggest. And uh, I respect, of course, my colleagues who are appropriators. Those are the folks who spend money uh, that they uh, are concerned that Jim Jordan would uh, cut uh, government too much. I would tell them, though, that that is he was the choice of the Republican conference. And, uh, of course, he is imperfect, but he doesn't hold the purse strings, uh, you know, on his own. There are 435 members of the House, and collectively, along with the Senate, we'll need to decide what to spend. Um, and I just I, – I think their opposition to Jim Jordan is, is on those grounds is misplaced. Yeah. Uh, those are the facts. I am wondering how it felt. What are the emotions of that moment for you? It has been – and this is the third week of – uh, we're, we're, we're rudderless, and that nobody takes orders from the speaker anymore. Again, in modern politics, the speaker, I mean, what, what, what could Kevin McCarthy do to me, right? Uh, that's just not where this is not hardball politics. But, but the soft power that comes from a speaker of the, of the, speaker of the House is, is, is sizable. 
they are the man or woman who comes to the microphone and, and like a head of state, tries to find where the body is at and to try to be a clarion call to say, gang, here are our values and here's tactically how I think we can proceed. And they are they, a good speaker of the House can be a, a compass that helps people find their way through these, these thorny paths. We have not had that. And as a result, we have been we are not getting our work done. And it, it is unsettling, Lori. I just I have to tell you. And then every one of these meetings, uh, they, they, they are unsettling. And we are acutely aware of the fact that we're not uh, we're not getting the work done we need to get done. And so I guess I would just reiterate, you know, I'm sorry to South Dakota. Uh, we, we need to do better. And I hope we will. South Dakota Representative Dusty Johnson, uh, you've taken a lot of time for us. We'll check in with you as this continues to unfold. Uh, we really appreciate hearing your voice today. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Tyler Tortson has been named the person best equipped to help the Sioux Metro Growth Alliance do some growing itself. He's the new president and CEO of the Economic Development Organization. And he's with me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio to talk about that position and what's ahead for SMGA. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about 16 towns, Four counties. What is the Sioux Metro? Yeah. Uh, Define that for everybody else in the you, rest of the state. You bet. Well, the Sioux Metro Growth Alliance is the state's largest regional economic development nonprofit. So currently we are four counties, Minnehaha, Lincoln, Turner, and McCook counties, 16 communities, uh, both rural and kind of suburban just around Sioux Falls. And uh, we also have a lot of uh, different memberships and stakeholders too that are in the economic development space that just care about growth. So that can be utilities, construction companies, banks, you name it. I mean, there's a, a lot of different folks that care about this kind of stuff. So it's really exciting. A lot of people don't realize some of the history of SMGA too. Mm -hmm. uh, as SMGA, the, the, the name, the brand has been around for a little over two years, but its roots go back to 1991 as the Minnehaha Economic Development Association. Okay. So Jeff Eckhoff, big time city leader uh, around here now, um, was in that space. And then in 1996, Lincoln County Economic Development Association. So Makita Lakita for short. Mm. Uh, we've had other people that have led the organization in its history. Eric Quebec, Nick Fosheim, most recently Jesse Fonkert. Uh, so a lot of history in this region all about growth. I was just at the uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce, the, Sioux, the Greater Sioux Falls Area Chamber of Commerce annual meeting and the energy <laughs> and the joy really and the, the sort of the cracklingness of that room as people got together and talked from different industries across just the city was pretty impressive. I, I was almost surprised by it, but I probably shouldn't have been. This is a this is a place with a lot of ambition mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, reasons to be proud right now. What do you see as the opportunities for the future? Well, I'd say first of all, I'm not I'm not surprised. We have that um, yeah. just diverse portfolios of industries too. We're not just all banking on one industry. So having all the different industries, the uh, from from the smallest mom and pop businesses to to large corporations that are headquartered here, um, just in in Sioux Falls in the region and in the state. On top of our just Midwest nice hospitality too and and excitedness, I think that that all plays a factor. 
um, you know, certainly this is a, a great spot to to live, work, and raise a family, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so trying to help sell that story and help manage our growth for the communities based on their needs and based on where they want to see themselves grow in the next 50 to 100 years. Our MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area, is um, in that list of one of the fastest growing communities. You look at where we're going to be by, you know, projections by 2060, you know, getting close to half a million people just within the Sioux Metro area. So it's a lot of exciting opportunity for for the future. This is a place that I always think of as as intentional growth Mm -hmm. in the sense that things are pretty well thought out and planned largely because, you know, we're not an an, uh, old city like uh, Philadelphia or Boston. So a lot of things that you see as the community grows were set up to grow in that direction. How do you sort of think broadly about, it's not just about growth, it's about the kind of growth that creates a future that our kids are going to want to live in. Yeah, you know, we got to give credit even going back uh, to both city community leaders, but like I said, all those stakeholders too, even even the developers, when they're looking at what the needs are in our communities, big and small, um, that intentional growth, like you mentioned, I mean, we see it uh, as Sioux Falls continues to grow. Look at Veterans Parkway now, that used to be called South Dakota 100. Mm -hmm. That project's been in the works for probably 20 years, and now we're seeing it seeing it through and seeing what that's going to do to help connect and be that corridor to that, that corner of the state and connect different communities uh, all the way to, you know, T and Harrisburg and Brandon and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that intentional growth is, is a key component. What's something that you think you bring to the table when you're explaining to people, like, this is, this is the fingerprint that I'm going to put on this organization when, when you get rolling. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's, no, I, it's too soon to say that. But as you enter something, you have intentions. What are your intentions? Yeah. So, you know, spending the last eight and a half years working for uh, Senator Mike Brown's office uh, from the state side, uh, and then, as you know, in the last year in the state legislature role, mm-hmm. being able to go do a part-time stint at, at that end pier, um, the, the state and federal perspective, uh, having those different, a better understanding of the, what other resources are out there, I view it as... Um, you know, I care about this region. I live here. I'm raising my family here. Mm-hmm. I'm passionate about the state. I'm, I'm, I've been able to grow my network and get connected. And so helping be that bridge builder, helping SMGA be that bridge builder to all the different stakeholders and these communities and focus on a win-win-win scenario for everyone as we, as we look to the future. Um, I think that that's, I view our role and my role leading this organization is helping to build those puzzle pieces and make the possibility or the potential a reality. Yeah. So many people in this region are also rural people. Mm-hmm. So that connectivity is is super important as well. All right. Well, Tyler, I hope we'll have you back, not only during the legislative session, of course, in January, but uh, in this role as well. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In January 1944, the United States created an official policy to address the genocide of the Jewish people in Europe. My next guest, Rebecca Erbelding, is an expert on what came next. She's an educator and historian, curator, and archivist at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Her book is called Rescue Board, The Untold Story of America's Efforts to Save the Jews of Europe, and it is now available in paperback. She's presenting and about her book and the U.S. response to the Holocaust today at the University of South Dakota, and she has stopped by SDPB's USD campus offices to talk with us. Rebecca, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me back. 
I'm almost as fascinated with the story as I am with your, I mean, the story obviously is is so powerful, but the process by which you came across it and the primary documents that are waiting to be uncovered and pieced together to form this story is also just fascinating to me. Tell people how you found your way into this story. Sure. So I grew up in a very rural area in upstate New York, a town called Churchville. And so there wasn't a Jewish population to to speak of in Churchville. And so I didn't really learn anything about the Holocaust uh, for most of my young adult years. And then when I was 12, I took we took our cookie trip to to Washington, D.C. and went to the Holocaust Museum. I had never been there before. I had I knew nothing about this, and I was absolutely fascinated. I didn't understand how this sort of thing could happen. And so I think like a lot of history-minded kids, I, I thought, well, I can figure this out. So I went home, I read everything I could think of, and then finally came down to Virginia for college with the idea of maybe I can work at the museum someday. Hmm. And I think one of the things that that is really interesting that people don't know is there is so much history that we don't actually understand. There are so many pieces of history that are yet unwritten. And it's really exciting as a young historian um, when you're just starting out to realize that you can make a real mark. You can find out things that, that other historians had not figured out before. And so my book on the War Refugee Board is, is really the first um, book focused on this actual U.S. effort to try to save Jews during the Holocaust. And it involved years of going into archives and photographing things and figuring out how to put them in order so that I was reading all of these documents in chronological order and the ways in which the characters in my book would have read them, would have understood them. And it was a long process, but it was a really fun process of detective work. Um, realizing, oh, they are referring to this right now, or, oh, these two people are friends. They had lunch together every day. I bet that's how this piece of information spread. And so a lot of that information, um, you really have to dig in, but it's, it's a lot of fun to try to figure it out. So there's no rescue board at the beginning of this. It's formed, and therefore there's no infrastructure in place. There's no precedent that they're working on on what kind of action to take. Tell me a little bit about John Paley and his leadership to try to put the pieces together to take action. John Paley is a really fascinating guy and somebody who I think was lost to history for a long time. Um, And he might have wanted it that way. I mean, he was born in Minneapolis. Uh, he spent some time in his childhood in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and then went down to Omaha um, and went to Midland High School in Omaha. He went to Central High School and then to Creighton University in Omaha before moving to the East Coast to go to grad school and to work in the, uh, in the Treasury Department. So he was a pretty unassuming guy, a Midwest guy, and he brought that Midwest straightforward, uncorruptible, sensibility to all of his work. Uh, He was originally in charge of U.S. sanctions for the Treasury Department, so trying to keep money out of the hands of the Nazis and their collaborators. And then when the U.S. did announce this policy of rescue and relief, which was something that he had joined in pushing for, 
he leaves his job in this very important part of the Treasury Department's work to go and be the head of this organization. And so he is really pushing and trying to come up with what a U.S. response should be. You know, what what can we do when we are thousands of miles away from the people that we're trying to help? Hmm. How do you measure success when you're looking at this from uh, the lens of the present day? Where are the places where you say that was effective? It's a great question, and it's something that even at the time the War Refugee Board was struggling to do. So much of their work involved sending humanitarian aid to Europe or putting pressure on a government to allow refugees over their borders into safety. And that's really hard to measure. Um, It was hard for them to measure. And so they ended up estimating that they had saved tens of thousands of lives and helped hundreds of thousands of people. And having looked at all of their documents, I I think that's right. Um, They were able to get food packages into concentration camps. They opened a refugee camp in upstate New York and brought Um, Holocaust refugees to the United States. This was the only group that came outside of the immigration process. And so those were clearly successes. Um, And you also have the fact that the allies at this point are winning World War II. And so there are a lot of governments who are suddenly willing to work with us um, and who want, you know, the favor of the United States. And if the U.S. government says, well, we care about what's happening to Jews, than their governments who are who are willing to step up and help us. And, and what you just said there, that's part of the reason why your book has been cited as a counter narrative to this idea that America did too little too late in this in this regard. We had to get to the point where there was a sense that people wanted to work with us because victory was possible. Do I understand you correctly? Anything you would add to that? I think you're right. I mean, I think this idea of it was too little and too late can also be true alongside my narrative. I don't know that it's a counter narrative, but a joint narrative. Um, There are people, I think, who look at this whole history and say, well, there's nothing to learn from it here. We didn't do enough. We didn't do anything. And therefore, you know, there's no sense in looking back on this history. Mm. And I think the fact that we move from a country that isn't doing enough, that isn't opening our doors to Jewish refugees, that isn't making a big push to help people who are clearly need of help, to one that has a policy and has a real effort to do so. I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from really how the activists manage to get a more humanitarian response Um, and and then what they do once they get that policy forward. Um, There's a a lot we can learn here, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have done more and earlier. Let's talk about the lessons and legacy for today. Sure. I mean, I think a a lot of what I tell State Department and Treasury Department officials when I talk to them about this story, because it is a it is a government story. It is the story of what a government can do if it's willing to willing to try, is that it's never too late to start a humanitarian program, that we never know what the future will bring. And so we shouldn't just say it, it would have been very easy for the War Refugee Board staff to say, well, you know what, the war is going to end soon. And so let's just get the war over with and then we'll deal with the humanitarian crisis. But they don't do that. And the war carries on and they are able to really affect change for people and to help people and to save lives. And so I think it is important to recognize that humanitarian aid can come late but it should come. We shouldn't wait for the crisis to be over to start 
helping people. And I also think it's really important to note that the creation of the War Refugee Board and the creation of this new government policy of aid came because there was public pressure to do so. And that public pressure wasn't fixing the situation. It was people calling their congressmen. It was people going to a a rally. It was people signing a petition or sending a letter to the editor. Things that we can do now if we are active participants in our democracy. And so I, I think it is a story that should urge people to continue to participate, to let our elected representatives know about causes that we care about, and really um, try to have a more humane policy overall. Mm. Well said. Rebecca Erbelding will speak at the Herbert S. Shell Lecture in History. That event's today, Thursday, October 19th, 4 p.m. in Farber Hall at the University of South Dakota. The reception begins at 3.30. And if you're going to that or if you're listening to our rebroadcast and have missed the event, check out her book. It's called Rescue Board, The Untold Story of America's Efforts to Save the Jews of Europe. Rebecca, it's always a, um, just a privilege to talk with you and be in the same space with your voice. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Let's take a moment now to head to the races. The crowds returned this year to the Fort Pier horse races. After struggles with funding from the state legislature, the 75-year tradition continues, and that is largely because of the advocacy of track manager Shane Cramey. SDPB was there to bring you the energy of the races from the shouting of the jockeys to the clouds of dust shoved airborne by so many driving hooves. In this Take a Moment, you'll hear the voices of South Dakota horse trainer Bob Johnson and manager Shane Cramey as they talk about the embedded traditions of a competition. You know, that grandstand, as a rule, for these two days, will be packed. And it's not because they, per se, go to their horse races. It's because their dad did, or their mom did, or their grandma and their granddad. It's a passed-down, generation-to-generation thing. You know, it's just a, a unique sport. I always like to say, when the first horses came into this country, that there was probably a horse race. My horse is faster than yours. That does it every time. That's a natural human instinct that I've, I have something faster, better than you have. And so we need to compare the two. Even further down those lines, when they would start breeding horses specifically for speed, it was my breeding lines are outpacing your breeding lines. So they established their whole breeding herd upon this idea of what they wanted to accomplish. A lot of horse racing, I think you can trace back certain thoroughbred lines to maybe two horses. And it was a competition year-round, but they had a race meet to decide who had the fastest horse. And everybody loves a fast horse. <laughs> you, know, and you can always ride a fast horse slow, but you can't ride a slow horse fast. You know, when those horses come out of the racetrack and they hear the crowd and they swish their tails and they prick their ears and, you know, they take it all in, just, just like all athletes do as they feed off the crowd. They're precision racing animals, they're athletes. And they train whether they know it or not. <laughs> but they enjoy it, you know. It's their nature to go fast. So all you gotta do is teach them how to control it, <laughs> somewhat. 
they come out of that last turn and the, the crowd stands up and cheers. Those horses feed off of that energy and if you get two or three of them in front that are that are very close, they're battling it out and the riders are hollering and they're racing, they're competing. It's just a, an electric situation all the way around. I've probably been in the starting gate or behind the starting gate in the last 35 years for over 4,000 South Dakota horse races. It makes your heart pound, it makes your heart beat, it gets you excited. It never gets old. You can watch the action now online. Head to SDPB's YouTube channel or sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. Justin Kohler's story is called Against All Odds. We'll have more in the moment after the break. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Well, a few weeks ago, Kevin Wooster came down with some familiar cold-like symptoms, sneezing, congestion, watery eyes, cough, all the fun stuff, and he chalked it up to a cold, and it didn't occur to him until the third day of illness to take a little test for COVID. He is now with us on the phone to talk about his second battle with COVID-19. Kevin Wooster, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, Lori, it's always good to talk about illness if you're a hypochondriac like me. <laughs> Let's just go. We could do it for an hour. And, you know, a lot of people would be like, I'm all in with that conversation. <laughs> Other people have already turned the dial. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I test all the time. I still test all the time. I had a cold. I had a sinus infection last week. I took a test every single day, but it's yeah. you. Yeah. You get off the, you know, the the the, the I, supply in the cupboard goes dwindles, and you you forget about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine me because I was the same way. I was testing. We were testing forever, and I always had a stack of those tests, and I was always <laughs> looking for where you could get them cheap or free or whatever and have yeah. them around. And oddly enough, and I decided maybe it was wishful thinking or denial, uh, in this case, I I didn't. Uh, I just kind of thought, it's, uh, it's going to pass. It's a cold. It's whatever and you know there have been a number of those as you know uh, over the last couple of years yeah. uh last three years i had covid the first time about 14 months ago but other than that i tested a lot of times and many many times and it was negative yeah. and, uh, and you for know some reason didn't test. for anybody who is a little bit prone to being on the lookout for every symptom to see what's coming down the road next we come by it honestly okay um you take your eye off the ball, and then is that what you said? Like, of course, the one time I stopped being a hypochondriac is the time yeah. that I got sick. <laughs> it's like the nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and three well, days in, you know, and four days shoot. before we're scheduled to leave for uh, for mm -hmm. the Grand Canyon on our driving trip, and my daughter's checking on my condition and asks by text, "Did you test yet?" Yeah. You know, that's three days after symptoms started, and I hadn't, and. Uh, of course, I tested, and that's, you know, as, and I kind of described in the in the blog the, the way the testing process works on these rapid antigen tests, and 
you're hoping that you don't see that T. The C is good. The mm-hmm. T is not. <laughs> and it's not 15 minutes the two times I've had it. Why, that thing just goes boom, red so. line right away, 30 <laughs> seconds in. Oh, but the bigger point of this is we were so vigilant. And now it does seem as if, you know, there's just a lot of people falling ill and they're not getting as severe illness as they were at the beginning. The hospitals are not filling up. We don't have um, a crisis like we did before. But maybe we should pay a little bit attention. Like it's cold and flu season is coming up. Pay a little, get your shots. Get that flu yep. vaccine. It's time to pay attention again to what you're bringing and spreading to others. How did you sort of handle that? I'm going on vacation, but yet now I got to find out what the new CDC guidelines are and do they matter for me? What did you choose to do? Yeah, I mean, and, and I had thought about that last, the newest COVID shot. I was going to get it. I was going to get it. I'll get it when I get my flu shot. And I just did other things, and then suddenly, boom, positive mm-hmm. test, and. Uh, you know, I looked around. I consulted with my son, Casey, who's a doctor, and about, you know, I'm going to be a week into the symptoms, four days into the positive test. What do you think? And, you know, he looked at our plans, which were not to get on a plane, not to ride in a train, not to go to a convention center and meet with people, but to to drive in the pickup and stay in a borrowed condominium in cabins, single cabins, and then Old motel, old style motel rooms that open to the outdoors. You don't go down hallways and gather in places. And he said, if you're feeling good, uh, you, you know, I had already isolated for a week here in the house as best as I could. Uh, and that's beyond what the CDC now talks about, five days isolation. And then through 10 with a mask, if you're going to be around people. By the time we actually got around people on the trip, uh, to any extent, it was going to be beyond 10 days. And my symptoms were getting much better by the time we left. And, you know, we were careful and I had some fatigue. And this was a significantly milder case than the first one I had. Yeah. Um, and that's all good. And I attribute that to the fact that I took every shot they told me to take and also had a previous case so that... You know, hopefully that's some of the reason that you have a milder case. And also the Omicron is less you know, severe maybe than those earlier strains of COVID were. Yeah. Did you have anxiety about getting it? Because there was, I mean, for people who are, again, a little bit, you know, more likely to be worried about these sort of things. That's not everybody. Some people just motor on and, you know, live their yeah. lives. And I admire them as long as they're being, you know, considerate of others. I'm not that person. <laughs> So when you saw that positive test, did you have any of that um, anxiety or that intense sort of feeling that, like, I I used to be really scared of this and now I'm less so, but yet the potential is there for this to be a serious thing for me? It's funny that the first first feeling I had was not like the first time I got it, when we still had so many unanswered questions about it, even though there was a vaccine. Uh, my first thing was, oh, man, this is going to really mess up this this trip. Maybe we won't be able to take it. We planned this for a long time. Um, but secondly was, I know I'm, I'm, you know, got my vaccines. I did okay on the first time around, although I got the repound, you know, as, as uh, yeah, Stephen Colbert called the worst sequel ever. And, uh, and it's, uh, but there was still the underlying thing that this thing killed a lot of people. Right. And even though I did okay the first time and I've seen all the advancements we've made and I've seen a lot of people that have gotten that people in my age group as well and been okay, there's still 
this is a a tricky disease still mm. for you know to to for some people especially yeah and a collective grief that still lingers for the people oh, that yeah. we lost or the relationships yeah. that we lost or the you know the problems that we had um you know getting our kids to school or you know being isolated the the damage that that did um, there's still a lot to unpack with uh, with this disease. So I'm glad that I can hear your voice and you sound great. So yeah. take it easy, yeah. though, okay? <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing it. Get your flu shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, they tell me, the CDC and my doc tells me I can wait three to six months to get the next COVID, the latest COVID, because the immunity I have now. But I'm going to get in soon here and get the flu and the RSV. So. <laughs> All right, everybody, you can laugh at us. Okay. We know that you're laughing at us. It's all right. <laughs> all right, thanks, Kevin. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. The Curious Music Collective invites you to a special night of music and storytelling. Asian Horror Night is happening in Sioux Falls this Saturday. The event combines classical music with supernatural stories from Asian cultures and, of course, spooky snacks and drinks are also offered. Dr. Chun Lin is executive and artistic director of the Curious Music Collective. They used to be called the Sioux Falls Chamber Music Collective. She'll play violin and viola for the show. And Lawrence Diggs is also here with us in our Sioux Falls studio. The poet, the community conversation leader, and the storyteller for the evening. Chun Lin, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. What an amazingly fun idea. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to do Asian Horror Night. Uh, just in case people don't know, I am Asian. <laughs> I am from <laughs> Taiwan. So um, I have always had this, you know, fascination towards horror stories. And we are, you know, th there are lots of Asian horror stories. And with different countries, a little different everywhere. And so I just thought maybe it's a time to bring my, you know, my this little treat to people. And thanks to the encouragement of Lawrence, he also has a lot of knowledge in this Asian horror, cult well, Asian cultures overall. But um, I didn't know he was also into the ghost stories. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's why we, you know, th we are super excited to bring this program to people here. Yeah. Lawrence, bringing people into the culture of storytelling from cultures they might not have ever visited. And there'll be some commonalities, but then there are some whole new things. Tell me how you come to this conversation and the research that you did to work on the storytelling for the program. Well, I come to it because I realize that the Asian culture uses these kinds of stories to tell a lot of uh, t morals to their kids. They, they talk about jealousy. They talk about saving face. They talk about many things that are the foundations of how we interact with each other and results of it. 
And a lot of the stories have to do with grievances that the, that the people, when they were alive, had. And those grievances weren't satisfied. So it also tells a story about just bec when you do something, there are repercussions that, that even past your death, there are repercussions. So those kinds of stories, and I grew up with those kind of stories and people telling me those kind of stories. So uh, they always meant a lot to me. So I thought, well, what is a better way to introduce people to Asian culture other than uh, food and kung fu? You know, so I think we, <laughs> we, you know, we, we, we should have some other facet to Asian culture than that. My favorite story from my time in the Philippines is the Mananagal. Mm. which is a Tagalog word that I'm mm. probably saying <laughs> slightly wrong, but that yeah. is very close, and this yeah. is a vampire that separates, usually in a female form, she separates the top of her body mm. from the bottom at night, and she flies around and really targets pregnant mothers mm. um, to put them at risk. And you're, to get rid of her, you have to find the bottom half and pour salt mm. on the torso. Yes. You know the story? I don't know that story. Oh. Uh, we, we have a the first time I heard that, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> and it had something to do with never putting, if you're sewing, never putting the thread in your mouth to like mm -hmm. wet it with your saliva when you mm -hmm. sew because that is how the spirit enters your body. Right. And I, I need a point, and I do not put that thread in my mouth <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, that's, that explains why you're still here, see? <laughs> I, I, out of respect, I'm, that is just a a respectful lesson that I learned yeah, yeah. from that story. Do you have a favorite? Oh, I don't think I have. I'm not really a favorite kind of purpose sure. per person, you know, because all the stories impact me in a different way. So I'm always reticent to say this is, if I say it's, this is my favorite one, you ask me that question five minutes later and I'll give you a different answer. Ask me after I've come to Asian Horror Night what my favorite one is. I'll have a different one too. Oh, okay. Tell, yeah, me, yeah. <laughs> tell me about the music. What, how, when you're scoring this and trying to figure out how to it, intersect the music with the story, where did you begin and, and what have you come up with? What's uh, in that mind of yours? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually very fun because it's, it's pretty much like a Halloween kind of vibe. So... Mm -hmm. Like the, there's always like low rumbling sound in the track when people think of you know horror movies, and then so I incorporated a little bit of that, and then also I have a percussionist Dana Levan, she will be on the show as well. So so we are doing a lot of different sound effects as well, and uh, our so so for different culture there's like. Um, different traditional tunes. And so I incorporated those in, in the show um, to kind of bring people to to that kind of, you know, culture and that kind of vibe. Because every, I think music is the most direct way to kind of remind, to, to bring people to a completely different scenario in yeah. their mind. Yeah. And, and that it's, it's pretty cool. And, and I think yeah, I think I think the fun is more like the interactions between the music and or slash sound, different sound, and the storylines. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun and a lot of stress <laughs> <laughs> for us to and yeah. to incorporate all all the elements, you know, on the spot spontaneously. 
Yeah. I love this creative partnership. Tell me a little bit about the name change, the Curious Music Collective. Mm -hmm. I just love that name. (laughs) Where'd that come from? Well, um, we started realizing that, you know, all the people on our team are all pretty curious. We are culturally curious. We're also curious about all different elements. Pretty much my own concept in my head is that we want to explore more new elements and, and talk to people from different backgrounds with different ideas and beliefs in the world. And hopefully we could translate that into collaborations mm-hmm. and, and bring all different elements to people. So um, it's like a, you know, upgrading kind of process in my head. It's like because I am limited. So by you know, making friends with other people, knowing their culture, knowing their differences and their belief system, their stories, we are able to, you know, make more friends and, and you know, have more inspirations to our music or art or even lifestyles. I want to make sure we leave people with information about the event. Asian Horror Night is happening Saturday, October 21st. It's at the Dada Gastro Pub in Sioux Falls, right around the corner from our studios here. We're going to put more information if you're curious about it um, for the event and tickets on our website at sdpb.org. Or you can always just Google Curious Music Collective and Asian Horror Night. Stories connect us. Music connects us. The arts here we go. Here we are in community. Yeah, exactly. Thank you both so much for being here with yeah. us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's program. Lee Strubinger reports on homelessness in Rapid City and an organization that was forced to shut down what happens next for the community. From all of us at SDPB Radio, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.